Hi, this is Dave Feldman. I hope you know we are recruiting for a study on lean mass hyperresponders and borderline lean mass hyperresponders. Just visit citizensciencefoundation.org slash study to find out more details. Hi, I'm Richard Morris from Canberra, Australia. In 2014, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. After taking the dietary advice of the Australian Diabetes Association, I became more diabetic. God, I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) I did some research, which led me to the ketogenic diet. Spoiler alert, I reversed my type 2 diabetes by drastically reducing my carbohydrate intake and increasing my consumption of healthy fats. In 2016... I was determined to help my buddy Carl by showing him what I did and the science behind it. Hey, y'all. This is Carl Franklin from the United States, and I also used to be a type 2 diabetic, and I devoured all the information Richard sent me. And after a mutual friend went keto to address prostate cancer, I also went on the ketogenic diet. That was in February 2016. By April, I was in full swing reversing my diabetes. We're not doctors, so we don't give medical advice. We're just a couple of dudes on the internet who just happen to reverse their diabetes by following a ketogenic diet. Right. We just want to share our experience, what we know about the science behind the keto diet. Yeah, so we started this podcast to chronicle Carl's journey and to provide some solid information to those curious about this dietary lifestyle. Right. Now we have over 200 podcast episodes, some of which have been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times. Hmm. And we also have some resources. After failing miserably on Facebook, (laughs) we moved our online community to the ketogenic forums where tens of thousands of people share their experiences. We also founded an annual ketogenic festival called KetoFest. Carl and I are both software developers, and we normally found ourselves at software conferences several times a year, and we tend to gravitate towards conversations that happen in the hallways. Sure, the talks are great, but it's the community that we enjoy the most. I happen to be at a software conference right now. In Las Vegas. So, yeah. So KetoFest is a conference to discuss the latest research of the keto diet. And it's also a festival celebrating the ketogenic lifestyle. And we're currently planning KetoFest for October 2022. And if you'd like to be notified when tickets are available, please add your name to the list at KetoFest.com. So, Carl, tell me, what is a ketogenic diet? Well, it's a diet where instead of burning sugar and starch for energy, our cells prefer to burn fat. That produces molecules called ketones that our bodies use for fuel. Right. Our main molecular fuels are glucose, which we make from carbohydrates, and fatty acids, which we make from fat. Our cells have two modes. In one, they burn glucose and make fat, and in the other, they burn fatty acids and make ketones. But you don't have to eat a high-fat diet to be ketogenic, right? When you're starting out, you may have to, but then in a few weeks, as you become better adapted to burning fat for energy, when all your calories are coming from fatty acids, the amount you need to eat becomes coupled to satiety, which integrates not only the variable amount of energy your body needs to run every day, but also the amount of fat that can be drawn down from storage. So how many carbs do we need to restrict ourselves to in order to get into that state? That depends. Some of us who are metabolically disordered need to get below 20 grams a day. Somebody who's quite metabolically flexible can eat as much as 100 grams a day. And how about other nutrients like protein, minerals, and essential cofactors like vitamins and essential fats? You need from 1 to 1.5 grams of protein for every kilo of lean mass. And beyond that, you just waste excess by turning it into energy instead of using fatty acids. 
As for the other essential nutrients, if you're eating fatty meats or eggs plus leafy green vegetables, you'll get most of those because the organisms that made those foods have already concentrated essential cofactors. Ketogenic diets are varied and delicious. They can be vegetarian or carnivore, home-cooked or takeout, hot cuisine, hot cuisine, (laughs) or just bacon and eggs. As long as your carbohydrates are low enough. If you're an absolute beginner, check out our Starting Keto episode for more information at start.2keto.com. So, Richard, how was your week? Uh, it's pretty good. Things are winding up at university, and I'm getting ready to do a Master's of Science in uh, Bioinformatics uh, and Quantitative Biology uh, next year. So I'm getting together all, all the subjects that I have to do to do that, so that's going to be cool. Um uh, the cricket's just started, so we're currently putting the English to the sword, and it's just two day. <laughs> we're just two days into a six week, five match, twenty five day competition. So wow, it's something I look forward to every couple of years. How long is the longest cricket match you've ever watched? So a cricket match lasts for five days. Um, Always? Yeah. So well, if somebody wins, it can be shorter. And this match may last for three days. We don't know. Uh, we'll but see. but a certain amount of hours per day, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, from from sort of uh, a, a cruisy ten a.m. in the morning till four p.m. in the afternoon. So, um, but it's it's uh, it, it it it's almost impossible to explain to to, yeah. to outsiders how it works. <laughs> but it 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 really is. It's it it's called a test match. Uh, there are shorter versions. There are versions of cricket that you can play in an afternoon. So, um, but but a test match is literally that. It's a test of character. I'll uh, download Cricket for Dummies from Audible.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, so that, so I'm enjoying that. Um, and uh, the big event every year is the Boxing Day match, uh, which is. Uh, it starts on Boxing Day and goes for five days um, uh, in Melbourne and uh, pretty much everybody in Australia. So Boxing Day for us, that's the day after Christmas, Boxing Day for Australians right. is a little bit like Thanksgiving in America. What we do is we we eat a whole bunch of leftovers from Christmas, all of the leftover Christmas food, and then everybody passes out on the couch watching sport on TV. So uh, right. you hang out with your family and you watch uh, watch the Boxing Day match. So Right. That's a t- typical Thanksgiving experience. So, um, sure is. Bo- yeah. Boxing Day in Australia is pretty much uh, the equivalent of Thanksgiving in the US. So, how has your week been, Carl? It sounds like you're in Las Vegas at a conference that is nothing at all like a festival. <laughs> I am. And uh, I've already seen Dave since, uh, you know, as soon as I got here, before I even came to the hotel, I picked up some stuff that I had shipped out here. Um, and uh, I went. I saw Dave's office and uh, got to talk to him in person. I'm actually having dinner with him on Saturday, which is a few days from now. Yeah, so Las Vegas is kind of a keto desert. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all about opulence here. And so generally, food-wise, that means fat and sugar together. You know, fat and carbs and lots of it. You really have to be careful if you go to a restaurant um, you know, because they don't know the, you know, they, they don't probably don't get many requests for, you know, no sugar stuff. Anyway, I have already had a couple of really good meals. 
And also, I got to tell you that uh, I've been using chocolate peanut butter keto chow as my saving grace. It, it really has saved me in those situations where, no, I don't want to eat the, the standard conference lunch um, or, you know, go to dinner at some place that doesn't have many options. So, you know, I, I am eating meals, but, you know, in between when I'm working and stuff, and uh, if I don't feel like going to dinner and navigating the morass, it's just uh, some, it's been uh, chocolate peanut butter keto chow. It's been great. So that's, that's what's going on. I guess uh, that brings us to the situation of mail. <laughs> what you got for us, Cal? All right. Well, someone on the forum was asking for a list of all the acronyms people use in the keto community. I think they called it, you know, keto alphabet soup. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm responsible for some of that. <laughs> yeah, otherwise known as TLAs, three-letter acronyms. And an administrator pointed them to our wiki of acronyms. And so on the Keto Forum, um, we started this, or we got from uh, one of the members, had it on their Facebook uh, account, and we moved it um, to the forum, and the address of which I've shortened to TLAs, dot two keto dot com t-l-a-s dot the number two keto dot com and because it's a wiki everybody can contribute to it that's true but you have to be registered on the forum in order to All access right. it and you may have to go through that initial period i'm not sure yeah you have to be trusted first yeah there's a thing on the forum where you're not allowed to post for a couple of days after you register just to um you know lower the possibility of having people go in there just to you know, be trolls. So, so I appreciate your patience with that, but go to tlas.2keto.com, register if you're not registered, and all those acronyms are right there, including yours, which is hashtag boring keto. <laughs> I wish not I'd really got TLA. that domain for that. You know, somebody else snagged a domain. Some, yeah, some sleazy bastard like, snag, <laughs> snagged that domain. <laughs> Um, because I used to always do hashtag boring keto in all my food posts, so I, right. I think I, I think I contributed to making that famous. Well, it is my distinct and awesome, repeatable pleasure to welcome back to our show Dave Feldman, uh, a good friend and citizen scientist, and now a published peer review author on uh, a paper about lean mass hyperresponders. And Dave, uh, I'm just going to start you off with the the idea that you coined the term lean mass hyperresponders in around 2017. Can you just kind of uh, remind everybody what that means? Well, it's primarily characterized by what I like to say is a triad, a combination of three. Three markers that you see in a simple lipid panel And the three markers of interest are LDL, cholesterol, and in this case being very high. Lean mass hyperresponders will have it at 200 or higher as the first cut point. Second cut point is HDL, the so-called good cholesterol, which we have at 80 milligrams per deciliter or higher. And uh, triglycerides at 70 milligrams per deciliter or lower. And that term originated 
because there was already the term hyper responder used for people who saw their cholesterol go up on a low carb diet. And I just noticed that a lot of people who were lean would exhibit the combination of these three, even at those cut points, which were all pretty rare in and of themselves. Yeah, it's interesting that BMI is not a marker that you you include in that definition. It's true. In fact, it's a source of confusion that in retrospect, I might have chosen a different term. So this is specific to people on low-carb diets, right? It. So <laughs> I need to do a little bit of a qualifier. It's an important one, which is theoretically, you might have these three cut points, not on a low-carb diet. But to date, I don't know that I've ever seen it. I, I don't know that I've ever seen somebody who wasn't at least low-carb, if not ketogenic, but at least low-carb, who's had this combination of these three thus far. So let's go back to when you started. Um, how did you discover a low-carb diet, and what did you see in your own results, including these lipid biomarkers? Well, so I'm going to give the super brief version because I've, of course, talked to both of you guys plenty about this before. And the mm -hmm. gist of it is that I was trying to dodge type 2 diabetes. I wasn't really, in my opinion, that much overweight, but I had an A1C of 6.1 two years in a row. And on the mm -hmm. second year, I started doing my own research and found on the forums, these diabetic forums, this LCHF. Keto wasn't even that big of a word by that point. But low-carb, high-fat in 2015 was I go on the diet. My dad and my sister go at about the same time. They're inspired to do so. They end up with normal-ish cholesterol numbers six months later, but I don't. At seven months right. in, my cholesterol is super high. And that begins my story of where I started like experimenting and publishing my experiments. And, and, uh, and then, yeah, I, I was welcoming other people sharing back their data so that we could all kind of collaboratively figure this out together. And, and that was lean mass hyperspotter was literally about a, about a year and a half in to this journey where I felt like there was just enough to like actually write an article on this. But the one funny part about all of this is that at the time that I was publishing, I was like, you know, this is just my own observation. I have no idea whether it's really going to hold because I didn't know at the time that I was publishing it, there could have been a whole bunch of people with morbid obesity coming back and saying, you're wrong. This, this is my profile. I have this lipid profile. You've just only been talking to your friends on the leaner side. Hmm. So what do healthcare professionals say when they see these results come through and what do low-carb healthcare professionals say? People who specialize in looking after people on a low-carb diet. Did they well, tell you just the tough... don't worry about it? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's the tough part of this journey is there really is a sort of there really is a sort of uh, characterization of learning and sharing this information on the internet to where it's not easily coming through to the medical side of the fence. So even the people who are experts in this area, lipidologists, I had a lot of difficulty bringing this research to them. And in their defense, it's because I'm sure they get, you know, a deluge of lots of internet theories and ideas. And so they don't really know what to make of it. And so for the longest time, to your question, it was a slow um, bringing it into the low carb doctors, those who actually are treating a lot of low carb patients who do see the pattern much more predominantly. And for the, for those, there has been a, I'm, I'm happy to say it's been a fairly decent collaboration. Obviously, I know a lot of people at this point who are low carb doctors who don't just treat low carb patients, but are themselves low carb. And they're very interested in this. And with this paper that we're about to discuss, I'm hoping that we get a lot more interest outside of the low carb community 
in this profile. So Dave, at what point did you find that there were a lot of other people, you know, that you met that you might group into your phenotype? And, and did you see just a whole bunch of them at once or how, you know, how many people did you find? Well, that's where the article really was a watershed moment because it was one of those things where you put it out there and a lot of people individually had noticed this pattern with themselves, but had no idea that there were so many others out there with the same pattern. And so in at least having a kind of name to it, even if it was a bit of a long name, uh, there all of a sudden were a whole lot of people were saying, no, this, this describes me. This is exactly what's happening to me. And for those individual people, they would have a doctor who said, I've never seen LDL this high because often that's exactly what the case was for that doctor. It's, it's worth emphasizing to listeners who, if they're, if they've really come in out of the cold, they've never heard this at all. It really is true that people who have an LDL cholesterol of 200 or higher are less than 3% of the population before this point in time. It usually took a genetic abnormality to end up with LDL levels that high or to be at a very severe metabolic derangement where you had, you know, very terrible atherogenic dyslipidemia, which is a very different profile, which we might get into. But it's just so unlikely that that would happen. It's It then becomes very common suddenly that lean mass hyperspotters all around the world are telling us, you know, I've been referred to cardiologists, I've been referred to lipidologists, they've never seen LDL levels this high. And so understandably, everyone's scared. And that, you know, translated to a lot more interest in taking care of this. Because as you guys know, while I think there are lots of meaningful ways for people to achieve health in, in diets, for a number of people, a low carb, a very ketogenic diet seems especially uh, of value, particularly if you have some kind of, um, you know, medical reason, such as some people, there's severe ulcerative colitis. For some people, there's, of course, epilepsy, which is where it came from. But the point is, there are some people for which they get everything looking great, except <laughs> for this one thing that their cholesterol going through the roof and who often uh, observe this and then are understandably afraid. That was the data in Eric Westman's paper, one of the first papers to test, uh, one of the first studies to test uh, the Atkins diet, was, you know, all these markers would go in the right direction, except LDL, which really seemed to, to in, in, for some people it, it went high, some people it went low, and some people it stayed about where it started. So the interesting thing here is that people with familial hypercholesterolemia, it doesn't change. It's constitutive. It, it, they have it for their whole life. But but what you're seeing here is people who have this sort of um, weird marker, but only when they eat certain types of food, and so that led you to the hypothesis. Um, and and you you did a lot of experiments of your own to try and test test around this hypothesis, right? What, what kinds of tests did you do? Yes, and look, let's let's get to the core of the word that we should focus on, and is worth unpacking at least for a moment. And th- and it's a word you hear all day long. And it's metabolism. And what is metabolism if not the counterbalancing of anabolism, which is the building up of stuff, and catabolism, which is the breaking down of stuff. And the area where it matters a lot to us and most people get is fuel. You're building up fuel and you're breaking down fuel. Well, if you're on a mixed diet, a lot of what you're building up and breaking down is going to be glucose in the, in the form of glycogen. 
if you're, if you're f- predominantly fat based, you're building up fat stores, but you're also breaking them down during those periods of time where you're not consuming food. So the gist of this, the gist of this is that, Hey, does cholesterol have a part to play in the trafficking of the fat that you're now powered by in metabolism? And I, I know Richard, you, you agree with me on this. Yeah. It definitely does. If you're, if you're powered more by fat, you are trafficking. You're at least moving through your circulation, through your bloodstream. You're moving more fats both to store them and to make use of them. And that's kind of the elevator pitch to the lipid energy model. Obviously, there's way more to unpack than that, but it is relevant. But you tested it extensively though, right? Yes, of course. Well, and, and we're, we're now working, uh, on a paper. Uh, that's been a long time coming. I know I'm, I'm a rabid perfectionist. I never feel like I'm done anyway. Um, but as the researchers will tell you, look, just let it be a version 1.0 and put it out there. Um, I'm working with some great people now for which, you know, we, we hope to get that up there, but bringing it back to your original question, um, is this a different context? Is this a different scenario than what we see with those who have genetic abnormalities that likewise result? and higher cholesterol, particularly LDL cholesterol? And I posit the answer to that is yes. Let me, let me simplify it even further. This is, the, this is the central question. Is the reason for your LDL levels relevant in its association with cardiovascular disease? Right. And, and if you believe in the lipid hypothesis, the answer should be no. It should be it doesn't matter because it's causal in and of itself. I suspect the answer to that will be yes, that actually – it is relevant as to what is modulating those levels as to what their association with cardiovascular disease is. Yeah, I'm, I, I know you did a lot of experiments of your own uh, uh, to, to basically uh, zoom in on this, but eventually you decided that uh, just one person doing ends of one and all of your friends doing the same test and, and trying to make their, cholesterol, make their LDL uh, cholesterol uh, figures go in various directions, which we, Carl and I both participated in. Uh, right. But after doing that and showing people how we could just move our cholesterol at will, and, and by cholesterol I mean cholesterol trafficked in LDL particles, um, after we showed that, really you decided to, to go pro. You started up the Citizen Science Foundation. You got together with actual scientists so you're do, you're doing this study where you actually go, you, you you're looking at it in detail, including um, high resolution um, scans you, uh, of of uh, is it just the carotid artery or are you you doing? Oh no, uh, we're yeah we're it's it's uh, let let me put the elevator pitch on that again sure. real quick. So yeah, effectively the gist is for the last roughly four years I've been trying to get this study going because. While the sciencey part I was just talking about is interesting and exciting, that original issue still exists where it's hard to get it out to lipidologists while they, th- while they would feel, and it's understandable why they mm-hmm. do, yeah. that lean mass hypersponders are at super high risk. So there's not a lot of interest in pursuing research in this area because it's already considered a high risk population. It would, mm. it would be like, you know, doing different diet experiments with untreated familial hypercholesterolemia to them. Right. And, I, I say I say that with deference and respect, by the way. So naturally, the question we all have to answer anyway is the one of safety. We have to right. answer, look, are these folks, are these lean mass hypersponders at a 
considerable risk for cardiovascular disease. And so this, this study that for four years I was trying to put together about two years ago, after a lot of not succeeding at getting the usual players involved, I said, heck, I'm just going to crowdsource it. So I, at a conference, uh, announced we were doing a crowdfunded effort to put this study together. And uh, thank you to the low carb community. They stepped up and we've, you know, it's about a quarter of a million dollar study. And we got the Lundquist Institute out of UCLA, which is very prestigious. And we have as our primary investigator, Dr. Matt Budoff, who's Nice. Had got 1200 papers to his yeah. name yeah. and He's is the man. Yeah. one of the, f- yeah, one of the foremost experts in the, in the primary, uh, uh, area of measure, which is a CT angiogram. We're going to be doing a CT angiogram at baseline. And then, um, for a hundred uh, lean mass hyperspotters, we're going to be getting it a second time a year later. And we're flying all of them there for each of these. And so we'll have longitudinal data. We can compare the first scan to the second and we can see whether there's the expected level of progression of plaque in their arteries. Is the CT angiogram the same CT scan that we've been talking about on two keto dudes or is it different? CAC scan? No. Right. What what you're probably referring to is a CAC, a coronary artery calcification scan, which right. I do think is a great scan. Uh, it will pick up calcified plaque and it does have a very high association with cardiovascular disease. But I will say this, um, it is, it's not to me, the gold standard is going to be a CT angiogram, but with respect to it is a higher dosage of radiation. Uh, you will need to have contrast dye, uh, injected. And there's, it's very, un- it's very unlikely, but there's say a one in 10,000 chance risk of something uh, a little more serious. These so things briefly, should be considered. What does it show? Well, it's what it does is it basically lights up, um, <laughs> lights up is probably not the best use of words, but, it, it effectively makes it to where a CT scanner can do very high resolution, uh, detection of your, like your, the whole geography of your cardiovascular system, everything wrapping in and around your heart. It can, it can look through the lumen very carefully and it can identify plaque volume. Okay. Uh, very effectively. So we're looking for soft plaques. Absolutely. And in fact, the non calcified plaque volume is our primary endpoint of interest. Right. So okay. so normally a cardiologist would expect somebody who has high LDL is going to be getting worse. Their plaques are going to get – the volume of plaques are going to be getting worse over time. So you're looking across – longitudinally across a year to see these people for whom uh, they're on a low-carb diet and they're in this phenotype that they hyper-respond and produce lots of LDL particles um, for the period of that study – um, you're going to look at the, at the before and after, and you're going to see: uh, is it getting? Is the, do they have one? Do they have cardiovascular disease? Two: is it getting worse? As you would assume by the amount of LDL that these people have. That that's your that's your null hypothesis, right? Yes. Well, I, of course, our stated hypothesis is we believe it'll be less than what you would expect for the very same level of LDL. And a population of, say, those with familial hypercholesterolemia. Again, mm. that's the primary comparator group because that's the group that has existed up until this point. Uh, if you go back to the work of Brown and Goldstein from 50 years ago, they were looking at children with homozygous FH. And it's it's heartbreaking, but at like age three, a little child would have a stable angina and um, exhibiting xanthomas yeah. at age three. So, so without question, from from utero, 
up until just a few years later, you see that difference. And that's very relevant because when we were talking to uh, Dr. Budoff initially, our team was planning a five-year study. We figured we'd need five years with a CT angiogram and, and Budoff, who knows the, the research and the devices much better, says, no, at this effect size, you should be able to see it easily in one year. There should be a very pronounced level. And because our entrance criteria is that uh, everybody needs to have been on the current diet and likely lean mass hypersponder for at least two years or longer, right. it's likely they'll already <laughs> have some at baseline if indeed um, these these are the same. If If we do have high LDL initiating and progressing atherosclerosis rapidly, then the existing community uh, of low carbers who are lean mass hypersponders would have a lot to consider there. I'd be very interested if you if you did a follow-up test where you took people who were not on the dietary pattern but were in the were were in the 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 in the in otherwise in the phenotype so you know lean 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 people who have uh you know normal LDL um and uh who are not on the dietary pattern and do a test then then put them on the intervention which is the diet the low fat uh, the high fat, low carb diet, and then do another test, and then do a test, uh, you know, in a year's time. It wouldn't surprise me if their uh, if the volume of uh, of uh, plaques went down purely because um, their triglycerides are going down and their HDL is going up. And I wouldn't be surprised if that would. I mean that that would certainly be something that that would be very interesting. But you know, just not moving anywhere, just their cardiovascular plaque not changing, but having been exposed to so much LDL is going to put the cat among the pigeons. That is that is that's going to be interesting when that comes. If <laughs> well, let's dive into your paper. If you're, you're done, Richard. You're still oh, uh, just one one quick thing. You're still blinded, right? So you don't you you don't know what the data is showing already. Uh, yes, not at all. In fact, that's a big that's that's part of what I try to emphasize to critics. Is a lot of people are concerned that I would have some control or that I could change the data. And no, there's effectively what it is is my team, myself, Spencer Nadalski, and Tommy Wood. We uh, worked with the Lundquist Institute to organize the protocol that they would then execute. But they're the ones. I mean, once it enters right. the door, they collect the data. They do not share that data with us at all until uh, we hit certain benchmarks, such as like when the first phase is complete and so forth. Nice. So, so in the meantime, you've you've just published a different paper, right? Which is a, a summary of your uh, of uh, data from your web survey, um, and now you are a published author, right? You're a co-author yes. on a published paper. Congratulations. Well, thank you. <laughs> me me <What's>, too. <laughs> definitely. First of all, I, I can't like say another word without pouring out enormous thanks for all of my co-authors, especially uh, Nick Norwitz, Adrian Sotomoda, um, David Ludwig, and uh, Dr. Tro, of course. All of them have been integral to making this uh, paper come together. Naturally... There's a there's a phenomenon that we're used to at this point inside of the low carb community that is a bit ironic, which is that the term lean mass hyperresponder has become so commonplace that one low carber talking to another low carber probably heard about it if they've been in the space for a while. And that's not a, a humble brag. It's just it describes something that was so 
ubiquitous and common that it was it was only a matter of time until somebody did it. it might as well have been us to just say okay look let's just use a standing survey of low carbers who've reported their prior lipid blood work and their current bl- lipid blood work and other things such as their carbohydrate intake their bmi as calculated things along those lines and at least just do a, even if it's limited, because it is survey data, which is limited, at least do a preliminary analysis on what that hyper response commonality is. And without question, we're very excited about the results. And I should, I should mention that while I'm going to talk about the survey, there's also a case series, which we'll come back to in a moment. But on the survey side, indeed, we saw a strong correlation with the two things of, of interest to me this entire time, which is, hey, if your BMI tends to be lower, it's more likely than not that you're going to see your LDL go up higher. This, again, yeah. by this point in time, many of us had already been observing this, but this is kind of relevant if you're already coming from a place of a higher BMI. If you're already coming from, say, uh, you know, if you're metabolically obese and you're considering going on a low-carb diet, but you're afraid that your LDL will go up. There's a reason we believe, certainly that I've believed for a long time, that if you get the broad base of just people going on low carb in general, that if you're looking just at that, you tend to not see a lot of LDL change. It's because the vast majority of those going on low carb usually were doing so for health reasons. As keto became more and more popular, there were more and more people who were lean and athletic and who might not have a medical interventional reason to go on it, but just wanted to try it out. And it's those folks, per this data and per what we've observed up until this time, that are at the other end of the spectrum. Lower BMI, higher resulting LDL after going on a low-carb diet. And what's so exciting is that virtually everybody who reported when we stratified between those who are non-lean mass hyperspondrous, those who were, their LDL was very close to nearly identical at the beginning in their first lipid panel. So the, the mean average between both was about exactly the same. And then sure enough, they go low carb. And what do you see? You see the highest change in LDL with those who are ultimately lean mass hyperspotters. The other axis is the triglyceride HDL ratio. If you already have what would be considered a good HDL, uh, a good triglyceride HDL ratio, which is to say your triglycerides were already low, your HDL is high before going on a ketogenic diet, it likewise means it's more likely that your LDL will change to get higher. So let me add one more piece to this, which is just the case series. The case series focused on uh, Dr. Tro's patients. And for those, we had much more robust data, which also uh, correlated strongly with what we saw with the survey data. But as per the energy model, as I was discussing before, adding back in some carbs, usually in the, in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 carbs daily, they would see the LDL go down. So these were people who had extremely high levels of LDL, you know, 500, 600, 700, et cetera. And for which adding back some carbs very like had a very uh, dramatic drop in LDL, which matches what we would expect with the lipid energy model. So Mm. the last part of this pitch is if you're not somebody who is metabolically obese, you are leaner, you're more athletic, but you are concerned about your LDL going up. First of all, more than ever before, if you were tell if you're talking to me, I would say, yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. If you're lean into your athletic, I, th- I predict that it's likely that your LDL would go up. But if that's something of concern, then recognize you don't have to just stay on a low fat, high carb diet. 
you may just not be able to be keto. If you're concerned about your high LDL, you may want to be something closer to low carb, which is going to be maybe more like 80 to 120 grams of carbs a day. So if I may, can I just try a recap here to see that I understand everything correctly? Cause I'm clearly the, uh, you know, the every man in the room here and uh, I'm just hanging on, right? So your, your study is a, is ongoing. It's a randomized control trial. This paper no. isn't the result of that study. Oh, no, for a couple things. One, okay. sorry, the, the Citizen Science Foundation, that's a, it's a different team. And it's, okay. it's out of Lundquist and it's not an RCT. It's an observational study. The paper I just talked about is the, is a standing survey data plus a case series from Dr. Tro. And that is now published. Um, and this is the analysis around it, particularly in the likelihood of one becoming a lean mass hyperspunder. Okay. But this isn't the study itself, right? No. So we're, we're technically talking about two different papers and two okay. different studies. And one paper has just been published. Uh, the other hasn't. And the, the paper that's just been published, chronologically it. speaking, that's the one from last week. And it's the survey data plus a uh, case study with Dr. Tro. And that mainly outlines this hyper response and particularly the, the phenotype of lean mass hyperresponders and what we know. But that, that paper has actually nothing to do with risk. We do not examine risk in any regard. There's no, there, there's nothing more than what I'm just describing now. And it mainly kind of puts lean mass hyperspawner, the phenotype squarely on the map. And really this. Yeah. You're trying to get attention, the attention of people who say, Oh, there might be more to this. I really am going to be interested in the results of the second of the actual study. Yes. This, the second is really around lean mass hyperspawners and borderline lean mass hyperspawners. But those who exhibit this triad, we've already gotten that in motion where we've recruited or, or in the process of recruiting a hundred folks that meet these criteria where they also have high LDL, high HDL, low triglycerides. We're flying them out to Lundquist and that's ongoing. That's going to take really about two years. And we're about, I want to say, four months in, something along those lines. And that that paper, there really actually may be something like 10 papers that come out of that because we're capturing a lot of different data on it. But that's ongoing right now. All right. So that is an observational study, not a randomized control trial, right? The the, the second one is, um, yes, you'd call it, you'd basically call it an, an observational study. We're capturing data. And it's worth taking a moment to emphasize that there really isn't a way which we can do a randomized control trial right now anyway. Sure. There's no ethical way in which, even if we know what I'm speculating now, that we can turn people into lean mass hyperspawners, I don't believe there's any IRB that would ever approve that we RCT people into lean mass hyperspawners for a year until we at least knew what that likely right. risk level would be. Okay, fair enough. So tell us about this paper that you just published. Right. So the first paper, uh, again, it's mainly about the triad, as we tend to see it, high LDL, high HDL, low triglycerides. It's worth noting that after we got that survey data, the machine chose the triad right. for us. That's one of my favorite aspects to it is Adrian Sotomoda is just a genius with these numbers and is just uh, absolutely fantastic with R. Anybody who knows anything about stats knows that R is like... 10th level mastery, you know, it's where you've got like the, you know, a fifth level black belt. R is the name of a programming language for statistics. 
Yes. The awesome thing about this is you can go download a free copy of R Studio and then go to the GitHub repository that's in the paper and download Adrian's code and the Excel Excel spreadsheet of the data that they're using and you can rerun the 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 analysis yourself and generate wow. all of the graphs yourself and you can see his code or come up with your own or come up with your own exactly look this is you guys have heard me talk about this for years and i and if i can get on my soapbox for just 30 seconds i am so adamant about the importance the importance of transparency yeah. and i really hope that there'll be i really hope that this is a point in time in which we're going to be pushing the pendulum back towards open science you know i am yeah, again, I, I don't want to be on the soapbox for too long, but going all the way back to fourth grade, that's what I always thought it was about, was showing your work. You need to show your work. You need to show your data. And hopefully there'll be more of that to come. I want to pause here to overemphasize what Dave just said and compare his approach to science to that of people who, you know, read something on the internet or, you know, some some read some stories about this person and that person and jump to conclusions to, you know, uh, and, and then close their minds to, uh, could it, could I be wrong? You know, I mean, Dave and real science is done by constantly trying to disprove your own hypothesis. Yep. And put your work out there so that, uh, and let your worst enemy have at it. That, that's, right. that's, that's the goal. So, so what criticisms, speaking of your worst enemies, what criticisms have you had from this paper from uh, your peer review or from the field? Yeah, lipidologists, cardiologists. Well, first of all, a lot of it is valid, even if we say it already in our paper. It is worth repeating uh, what I even said earlier in this podcast, which is, for example, survey data is limited. That said, the survey data being limited, it the degree of correlation that you see across those quantiles, I'm sure, are, are very enlightening. So a lot of times, even when uh, as, as e epidemiologists will point out, when there is that degree of coalescing across multiple sectors on something that's a, a strong correlation, it is worth at least looking to for a strong hypothesis building. So that, as I'll say many times yes. over, and as, as I'm sure you guys will agree, epidemiology is not great at, at demonstrating causation. It is, however, pretty good mm -hmm. at knocking down claims of causation. That's one of my favorite aspects to it. And in that regard, there's there's a lot of interesting discussion that it's brought forward. But one of the things that I am appreciative of is that we've maximized the ability of critics to criticize us by laying out all of the code and um, the uh, the data. There have been helpfully some people who've crowdsourced, like looking at the data and helping us to find any and all things that we could do to correct it. And I'm glad that we did it on our uncorrected proof return. So we still actually have an update that's going to be coming to mm -hmm. the paper um, after this uh, podcast goes to air. And that'll actually be a corrected version of it. And it, it hasn't really changed our underlying, underlying findings. But I like that because instead of having, say, two or three peer reviewers, you have, I don't know, 10,000 public reviewers. And if somebody wants to be your chief critic, I invite that person to the table. Like if somebody has that level of passion, it's all going to help us to get to the truth. And so in that regard, it's it's not even just the critics criticism that I've heard already. It's the criticism that may yet be to come that may further mm -hmm. open our eyes to a better way of looking at this. Yeah. 
that's awesome, Dave. So, so at some point we're going to have to sit down and have a chat about the biochemistry of uh, of energy metabolism. Uh, I did have a plan to to talk about that today, but uh, we're going to leave that off for 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 another day. Uh, I know Dave has a hard endpoint to get out to, so um, I'm going to f- finish off now with with uh, a summary that I mean that this paper will have in the show notes. So you can go and read. You can go look at the code online. And that's going to give you the, uh, an understanding of the, of the lean mass hyperresponder uh, phenotype and, and the basis of the hypothesis. But there's also this other study that's still recruiting, right, Dave? That's right. The, and if I can pitch real quick, you just go to citizensciencefoundation.org slash study. And that's our official page, our official recruitment page. The basic eligibility is that these are for folks who've seen this quote-unquote hyper-response. If you've had an LDL of 160 milligrams per deciliter or lower, and you saw it increase after going on a low-carb diet to at least 190 milligrams per deciliter or higher, and whatever that change is, it's at least a 50% increase of your total LDL, alongside having an HDL of 60 milligrams per deciliter or higher, and triglycerides of 80 milligrams per deciliter or lower. And lastly, our sixth major criteria is that you have to have been effectively in this, this phenotype for two or more years. So if you've been low carb, you've been, you know, this borderline lean mass hyperresponder or lean mass hyperresponder for two years, three years, four years, then please check out our page. There's additional criteria, but, but that's for the Lundquist to talk to you about. And yeah, we want a hundred folks to you know fill out this study. It's really a great study. Yes, you have to be in the U.S. as well. So the other week we gave a call out to Jess Turton's type one, type two diabetes recruitment. This week we're going to suggest that you, uh, if if this sounds like you, go to what is it? What's the URL again, Dave? Citizen Science Foundation. CitizenScienceFoundation.org and slash study. You could just go directly there or just if you go to citizensciencefoundation.org, it'll direct you there. Great. Well, thanks very much, Dave. And I, I hope the recruitment goes really well for that study. Congratulations on um, uh, this paper that you've just published last week. Um, that is awesome work. And we look forward to talking to you more. In a Thank you so much for having me on. Yes. Congratulations, Dave. You so I think it's time to look. That's more malarkey. Malarkey. <laughs> yeah. So what, what are we looking at today, Richard? So I'm looking at a website called type2diabetes.com. Okay. Well, that sounds like a pretty authoritative domain. Lots of good information there, right? Lots of malarkey there, Carl. <laughs> from their about page, they tell us type2diabetes.com is one of 38 different disease-specific sites brought to you by Health Union LLC, an independent company not owned in whole or part by any pharmaceutical, biotech, medical device or any other healthcare services entity. We only use trustworthy sources like, such as the FDA, the American Diabetes Association and peer-reviewed journals, among others. Well... Sounds like they're pretty impartial and follow evidence-based practices, right? Well, you would think that, but let me give you a feel for the kind of content that they produce. Um, I'm going to link in the show notes uh, an article called There's a Reason It's Called Diabetes Journey, Type 2 Diabetes Progression. So this article uh, 
basically talks about how diabetes is a progressive disease. It only gets worse. You've just got to get used to it. Diabetes progression describes your body's declining ability to make insulin, which has nothing to do with what it's about. But anyway, uh, Hmm. it happens because your body's two basic insulin issues with type 2 diabetes resistance and insulin decline. So in other words, this is a rejection of the idea that people can reverse their type 2 diabetes. Absolutely, and this is a, this is a, a website that is putting itself out there as a as a uh, a, a beacon of information about type two diabetes. Okay. Um, so they talk about um, uh, about um, changing your eating plan, which is really eating a low calorie diet to try and lose weight. Uh, talking about increasing exercise to obviously lose weight, and they say that um, people with type 2 diabetes often hear that they will not need to rely on medication if they eat right and exercise. While that may be true in some cases, it's less likely the longer you live with diabetes. Well, I, I would actually agree with that. You don't have to live with diabetes. It's not a, it's not a, a foregone conclusion. Um, they, they talk a little bit about, um, uh, about how diabetes progression does not equal diabetes complications, and yet the, the evidence from the DCCT trials shows that, yes, indeed, increase in HbA1c, which is a marker of diabetes progression, equ- equates precisely to an increase in all of the diabetic complications, you know, amputation, um, uh, diabetic retinopathy, blindness, uh, uh, diabetic yeah. kidney disease, heart disease. All of these things happen the worse your diabetes gets. Um, so diabetes progression, yes, indeed, does mean an increase in diabetes complications. Um, you know, the, 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 the website goes on to talk about how diabetes progression is natural and normal. Um, uh, finally, diabetes progression is something everybody with type 2 diabetes will experience. So if you're a type 2 diabetic, according to this website, it, it is natural and normal for your disease to get worse. Um, you know, so I, I, commented on this website and uh uh, i saw that the whole idea about this malarkey is that um that the disease is reversible in in the case of the verda study they showed that 53.6 percent of the of the type 2 diabetics that they recruited who had type 2 diabetes for over eight years were able to reverse or remiss their type 2 diabetes and 96% were able to get off uh, medication. So, um, you know, that really the, the problem here is that I guess they've just not met enough people who've reversed their type 2 diabetes. So I'm going to leave this as an action item for our listeners to definitely go, go check out the post and go check out the website and, and, be noisy. I mean, the, these organisations need to hear from people who have managed to reverse their type two diabetes. Um, it's not just Carl and me. It's 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 all of you guys out there. We need to get up and get out there and talk about how the fact uh, how we've been able to reverse our HbA one C and the kinds of things we did, because these websites are seen by lots of people who were in the same situation we were before we. Uh, uh, found a ketogenic diet. So uh, that's going to be my action item. It's, it's short and sweet this week, but uh, really, you know, if you uh, if you disagree with websites like this that talk about uh, type 2 diabetes being only progressive and uh, medication uh, being um, necessary, um, then uh, there you go. There's your action item. Go, go get them, people. And, you know, 
Richard summarized his comment, but he ends it with, so it is possible to eat right and exercise is optional. It is possible to stop progression and increasing medication is not a given. And one of the community moderators said, Richard, thanks for sharing. Appreciate hearing your thoughts and perspective. There are many here, who, and this is after you talked about the clinical trials that uh, Verda did. Yeah. There are many here who have been able to control their diabetes through diet. Wishing you the best. So, yeah. So, the, you know, it's friendly. Control. And, yeah. I mean, these, these yeah. are nice, well-meaning people who just probably haven't met somebody who's who's reversed their diabetes. This moderator is a registered dietitian and presumably a, a certified diabetes educator. She may right. never have met anyone who's been able to reverse their disease. And this is something I think that we as a community can actually do, is we can get that out there on these kinds of sites and let people know it's not hopeless, um, that it is possible to uh, take action and reverse some or all of this disease or at least stop it getting worse. Yep. Uh, it's not. It is not a given that you that your type two diabetes has to progress. So mm-hmm. that's my malarkey for the day. Very good. And uh, I guess it wouldn't be a two keto dudes without a few uh, recipes. recipes. <laughs> okay, Carl. I'm going to let yeah. you do all the recipes this week. What you got? All right. Well, I mentioned before, and if you didn't hear it, I'm sorry. But um, I. I Kind of invented this low carb noodle called Bazoodles. B Z O O D L E a couple of years ago. And, um, not wanting to just give it away because, uh, for various reasons, I wanted to, you know, see if this was valuable to people. So I basically started selling a cookbook and I asked people to please not share the recipe. You know, we wanted to, uh, you know, keep it. Uh, for sale, and then I signed some cookbooks at Keto Fest and all that stuff. Well, that's changed. I've opened it. I've uh, basically made the bazoodle recipe and the cookbook free. Nice. Yeah, uh, because you know it, it it had its time and it was great, and now it's time for the general public to sort of embrace this thing. And so, uh, if you go to bazoodles dot com, and that's b z o o d l e s dot com. And just click on uh, Get Bazoodles. There's a link to a PDF file, which is the current uh, version of the cookbook. And it includes the basic bazoodle recipe, which is two large eggs, a half a cup of egg whites, one teaspoon of transglutaminase, which is a a chemical. I'm I'm sure you can talk about that more than I can. It's it's an enzyme, yeah. It's an enzyme. Yeah, it's an enzyme. Links proteins together and... uh, in the food industry, they call it meat glue, but it's just an enzyme made by bacteria that, and in fact, we make it in our own bodies, so there's nothing unnatural. And uh, half a teaspoon of egg white powder. And essentially, you just blend all these things up, and you make a crepe, uh, and you sl- make it very thin, and you slice it with a pizza slicer or cut it with a knife into noodles, and there's a lot of recipes in there that you can make. And the difference between this and a crepe is that that uh, transglutaminase uh, changes the texture so that it's al dente. You know, it's, it, yeah. it, it fights back against the tooth. Whereas if you if you yep. stick your tooth into a crepe uh, or a, chew an omelet, an omelet, it just falls apart. Whereas this this, right. this gives you a real pastry feel to it. So yeah, and yeah. it's elastic, like like egg noodles. 
And so there, it's closer to egg noodles than pasta, I think. But uh, yeah, it has that toothiness to it, and it stretches, and uh, and you can read the all about it in the cookbook. But there's one recipe that stands out among the rest because um, it's not just sliced pasta, and it is ravioli. Yeah. So, <laughs> ravioli was kind of a happy accident with bazoodles. The key to making them is that they can be sealed and hold up to sauces without breaking open. And it turns out that bazoodles are still very sticky when they come out of the pan, and that's the perfect time to add filling and fold them over so they form a nice seal. So, so you can imagine like a nine-inch, very thin crepe coming right out of the pan. And then you uh, put some filling like a ricotta cheese, Parmesan, Romano, nutmeg, salt, pepper, and egg, you know, your classic ravioli filling. And you could also use meats, uh, any kind of things you want to put in there. You know, make three kind of piles of that. Put a little of the batter around the edges or not. I mean, if it's still sticky when it comes out, just fold it over. So now you have like a half crepe, right? And then you push the three, you're making three ravioli from this. So you basically push down and seal, uh, the edge and the, the sections between the three raviolis, the two sections, right? And then you, um, cut those and you have these little triangles. And now you can, in a saucepan, brown butter and sage over uh-huh. low heat. Burn for three head. to five minutes. Nice. Yeah. And you add the ravioli to the pan and cook for another two minutes and, you know, spoon over the butter French style and uh, serve immediately. And let me tell you something. It is just amazing. This is, I think, my favorite bazoodle, bazoodle recipe. Nice. I, it's five, cookbook. it's five o'clock in the morning here and I'm starting to get a bit peckish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, that's a show. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope you get as much out of this information as we do in putting it together. You know, two keto dudes doesn't take advertising revenue. We have no benefactors with hidden agendas. That's right. It's li- listeners like you who keep our lights on. And there are a few ways that you can support us all of which are listed on our website at support.2keto.com. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on Two Two Keto Keto Dudes. Dudes.